You're listening to the fourth episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but it is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 4, What You Want. When writing or making things like this podcast, as it touches on what some might call spiritual, spiritual issues, issues, I know what a lot of people want. They want to unreflectively keep on doing whatever it is most other people they've chosen to have in their lives expect them to do. Unless someone new can tell them to do something else they'd rather do, that's what they're going to keep right on doing. And no man is an island, and there is such a thing as getting along and working with other people and being considerate. But unfortunately, what I'm mostly advocating in this podcast is growing up, taking responsibility, finding your way by fumbling through it all, and generally not being a follower. Not because you are incredibly wise and know better how to live your life properly, because no one else knows either. It's not anyone else's job to know how to be you properly. That's your job. As we reach adolescence, we increasingly find our folks don't really know how we should proceed in a changed world with different priorities. So, if they're wise, they increasingly let us choose our own paths and find our own ways. Because that's right and proper when raising children. That's built in to how human beings need to develop and operate. Anything else is damaging. All of that's not terribly reassuring, I realize. We want to turn to the back of the book and sneak a look at all the answers. Easiest to choose a leadership package that suits us so it can make our life decisions for us while we turn our existential thinking right off. Easiest to try to believe that the Bible tells you exactly what to do, every decision to make, every single step of the way, like they taught us growing up. That life is setting aside your own decision-making capacity and letting God choose a special path of infinite wisdom and sense just for you. Well, I've got some terrible news. Even God refuses to do that most of the time, though ministers, busybodies, and self-help gurus often differ from him in that respect. If you shut out every single person who claims to be an agent of God, sent here to influence and co-sign on all of your life decisions, you'll find that in the absence of their meddling, God just won't play. So either there isn't a God, or if there is, he isn't your life coach, and people who claim to be sent by him to try to guide your life decisions might just be gods unto themselves. In other case, it is, in the final analysis, up to you to choose your paths and walk them and make something of the life you've been given by God or by nothing. And yes, God or no God, you'll definitely be judged for how things in your life end up turning out afterward. That seems to be pretty much the point of the whole exercise. I see evangelicals lately posting big memes on social media with colorful backgrounds behind blocky text, and oddly, it's got me thinking. I'm sure that wasn't the intention. Some people in memes say their lives turned around once they stopped blocking God's plan for their lives. But once you listen to their actual story, their lives actually turned around once they started living in reality more, once they stopped living in denial and pretending things were other than they really were. So an example is, 
They lived in denial of an addiction or some life foolishness, just as if it was perfectly fine and not messing their life up at all. And then, one magic day, they accepted that, in fact, they had an addiction or something. And, in fact, it was not fine. And so they needed to make different life choices that reflected this reality. And then, shockingly, generally after a bit of a bumpy patch, their life started to make more sense. So they described the experience as God, for years, trying to make them go down one path, the path of common sense and caution and logic, and them going their own way, instead, for years, a way of foolishness and selfishness and idiocy. They say they took charge of their out-of-control lives and made the decision to let go of their own decision-making, which had been stupid, and woke up each day making the decision to follow what they saw as the decisions that God had made for them instead. And maybe they did that? An atheist, though, would see it maybe as them stopping living in denial. And I'm sympathetic to that atheist view, even though these are the people who need to believe in the universe, reality, karma, justice, and injustice, but quail at letting any of that have an agenda. People who need everything in the universe, including numbers, cells, atoms, planets, and galaxies, to make perfect, logical, mathematically predictable and accountable sense for no particular reason. Human beings being the most intelligent intelligences that now or have ever intelligenced. Unless there's aliens. No time to believe in fanciful imaginary things like Christians do. Unless there's aliens. I was raised to think, I know there's a God, and I know life's like this. And I've never really felt that it's increased my logic, humility, perspective, or personal growth even a smidge to simply flip that around to say, I know there's no God, and I know life's like this. Fitting in, or not fitting in, is really a thing. In the concept of the album's story idea, for this song, the Wanderer is approached by popular insiders who offer to help him blend better by being more like them. Let's start by talking about who I became in my adult life and about connecting to other people and having casual conversations in general. Many of the people I went to school and church with were smarter than me about things like money or investment or physics or computer programming or meteorology or things like that. So they didn't really enjoy talking to people like me about that stuff, because we're non-experts. Everybody's an expert in something. I'm an English teacher, and for fun, I've taken and passed many master's-level online courses about reading works of classic mythology or learning Old Norse grammar or reading Chaucer in the Middle English and various other things that make Shakespeare child's play. I'm a nerd about those things. Now, in my courses, I am often far from the top of the class, as people with master's degrees in linguistics or Latin or such are branching out, and this stuff is easier for them than it is for me. Sometimes just turning your brain on, as regards various subjects, and letting it run for a few decades, talking to others about certain things and reading books and watching YouTube stuff about those things and taking courses in those things, puts you way out in front of the crowd in certain rooms. So sometimes, not very often actually, I'll be able to talk to someone about the Bible, the wife of Bath, Boethius, Banquo, or Beowulf sensibly. Depends on the room. Not very often, though. But that's now. I am more or less who I want to be, and no one gets much say in that. High school was really different. I wasn't even close to becoming myself yet. 
When I was in high school, suffering some of the worst depression of my life, and some chirpy happiness Nazi would shrilly demand, where's your school spirit? Because I wasn't wearing ugly socks on ugly socks day to prove my unquestioning tribal allegiance to our redneck high school. What I was hearing was, where is your clinically lacking capacity for joy, Michael? Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes had a song I really related to back in high school. Like, I had a lot of depression in high school. And weirdly, one of the most depressing things for me was the students' council, the spirit days, the pep rallies, the the assemblies, all the things. Because how I experienced depression is it's like you're missing happy juice. And then people come in there demanding enthusiasm and joy and and you just don't have it. And it, it makes you irritable because you, you don't have that to, to respond. If, if, if you just do a normal day, you're okay. But if you're supposed to be especially cheerful, that doesn't work. So that line, all my memories of high school assemblies become so deadly in the middle of the night. For me, yeah, high school assemblies were particularly depressing and stressful when I was in high school. And now I teach in a high school and they're also not my favorite. Yeah. Did you write that? I I wrote that. That was a song that was actually written previous to the Northern Pike, Stars in the Sky. Mm -hmm. But I guess it needed to ferment for a couple of years because it didn't get on an album until 1988. But yeah, yeah, no, that's how I felt. I, I, I felt very similar to you in high school. You know, once I sort of figured out how I could escape from assemblies or pep rallies or any of that stuff, it was just, and I guess part of me was just a teenage rebellion. And it would have, I probably would have felt different if I was a really good athlete that was on the football team or something, Mm -hmm. you know, I probably would have gone, oh, this is great, you know, but I, but I wasn't. And I, I guess I was sort of a rebel without a a brain or a cause, you know, I'm sort of, if it's there, I'm going to rebel again. It's the teenage thing that, that a lot of kids do. And I did, you know, so I just kind of did that. So by the time grade 10 rolled around, I, I figured out how to get the hell out of there. You know, there was always, and the word would go around. It was like an underground network. It's like the door on the other side of, you know, the portables there will be, no. won't be a teacher there because they would post them to sort of keep you in and stuff. It was really, it was a very athletic school that I was at in high school. Ours was the same. And and by the time I got a driver's license, it was a very simple equation that I would borrow the family car and drive into school if I wasn't too depressed. And it was always a, a challenge to get in there. And I would get in there. And if I found that they were canceling English class and math class for a football thing, I just went right back out to the car and drove straight back home. It was worth my time to graduate high school, but it wasn't worth my time to cheer football. Yeah, exactly. It was sort of, and I know what they're trying to do. I mean, now I look at it and I look at it, it was, it was kind of fun. I actually Some kids love that stuff. Yeah. Never had a trophy. I never wanted one. My brother has somebody. Never looks at them. I never had a trophy. I never wanted one. Well, exactly. That's the same thing. You know, I never did. I guess that's why people kind of relate sometimes to lyrics. Back in the day, it was about being, or in my case, not being terribly 80s cool. 
and something happened to me repeatedly back in school. I can remember sitting in shop class taught by a guy from our church where I had made a crappy little wooden sword and shield and fanciful wooden battle axe, and a guy named Ken offered to take me under his wing and help me be more cool, like him. He pretty much worded it like that, too. Problem number one I had was that what Ken was suggesting was him undoing most of my choices and instead making other ones for me, which my home and church were already doing all the time. In fact, being 80s cool was problematic to them. And I had high standards. If I was going to let someone make all of my choices for me, they better at minimum be claiming to speak for God. Problem number two was that I couldn't help but notice that Ken wasn't actually all that cool. In fact, many of the other shop students were topping him in that area easily. But this happened repeatedly throughout my life. People offering to help me blend, to help me fit into this group or that by doing whatever they said and not being much like myself. I could do whatever I liked, of course, so long as I knew that it was wrong for that group. And this went very much against my practice of not living as a performance or for show. You were just who you were. You had a you had kind of an identity from birth that wasn't negotiable for you or for anyone else. They're kind of like, you know, you need to wear different clothes and then you'll be cool like me. Mm. No, I've never had anybody do that specifically, no. That's good. And you've never done that. Never told someone, look, you need to wear different clothes. No, I've had people that I've wanted to do that for, right. but they hadn't asked me to. And so I didn't presume. <laughs> A lot of people I talked with spoke of the experience of not being cool when they were young and even struggling with the concept. I don't know if anybody really tried to make me cooler. Um, I might have been a bit of a hopeless case. In that a respect. lot of us <laughs> like that. Yeah, I was fairly eccentric and um, I was pretty shy. Even for a techie guy in an all-guys school, when it came to graduation dance time, I didn't have a date. So I went home. I skipped the, the dance part. I guess I wasn't cool. Some, some of the other guys already had their own motorcycles. So I guess they were cool. It's like, we'll let you be in our group, but you really need to be more like us. No, I was never close enough for anybody to do that. <laughs> Obviously, if you look good, if you have, you know, if you're attractive or thin or... Are you saying that if you were attractive and thin, even if you wore like completely the wrong clothes, that that would still be cool? No, not necessarily. But I do find that that's a pretty big part of popularity. Another big part is uh, being affluent enough to afford the latest trends. Having can you, can you think cool of any specific fashions or items that would have been like the cool kids had that electronic device or those shoes or something? I remember for a while, like if you had a sidekick or for a while it was um, like an iPod. Yeah. I think I paid more attention to that stuff when I was in middle school. So in middle school, you know, the girls who wore makeup. I can't talk about um, whether or not that applies to me during high school, because honestly speaking, I was way too depressed for that to be an issue. Let's dip into the Wicked Mailbag. AJ says, sad to say, being as ungirl-like as I could was the coolest thing I could think of. 
I've reconciled with that now, and will do whatever the hell I want. I'll just sometimes now wear pink while doing it. Jane says, I never knew what made some kids cool, just that whatever cool was, I wasn't it. Including a picture of Bob Dylan, Kim comments that being cool was to be like the coolest man on the planet then and now. Of course, no one thought I was cool. James, being from California, says you were cool if you were a surfer. Shalomi Homie says, cool meant that people gave you positive attention and talked about you in positive ways, both to you and to others. Uncool was determined by things that were different, particularly differences that could be leveraged into a weakness that propped others up. Sometimes people tried to help me be more cool. I still have no idea why, and I still can't remember specific examples. I just remember it happening every now and then. These dynamics were very strange back then. Everyone looking for value, significance, and recognition. Tim says, listening to Van Halen was always cool. It still is, come to think of it. Waking up on your friend's living room floor hungover with piss all over yourself in the carpet was not cool. Just for fun, I think I'll share my memories of what was going on with 80s cool. As I recall, cliques, just as depicted in 80s movies like The Breakfast Club, were much more of a thing than they had been before or are now. Owning uh, specific brands like Varnay, yeah. Ocean Pacific, like mm -hmm. of shirts and things, yeah. or... Um, if you remember those, um, uh, hypercolor, hypercolor or fucking grooving the, f yes. Yeah. Fucking grooving stuff. Yeah. Things like that would definitely like you, you make it cool because they were unbelievably expensive. Varney. I really remember cause I knew people that would get in trouble. You'd see like kids that weren't at school because they got in trouble stealing. Yeah. Another big one would be, um, uh, Reebok pumps. Reebok. I was about to say, what were the cool shoes? Yeah. Reebok pumps. I had Reebok pumps. Yeah, the that pumps, was that cool. The pumps, uh, or some of the Air Jordans, Nike, never, Air, Nike had, Air Jordans, those, those were big, big shoes. British Knights, the BK Knights, yeah. they were pretty big at the time. Um, and I, every now and then I had New Balance, and I didn't know that New Balance were not cool. Yeah, it's funny, like, I am wearing New Balance shoes right now because they make them in the size that's very comfortable, and in fact, yeah. I've been wearing literally the same version of shoe, I just go into New Balance, I'm told I that they're not. The I'm, I'm told that they're not choice one among African Americans this year. <laughs> yeah, probably not. It kind of says, this is a white middle-aged guy, and, and I loved my, I love my, my New Balance, but... Um, now I'm wearing Vans, I guess I'm being an idiot, but... Yeah, you wear a shoe that's comfortable... Preppies were ambitious and worked to look affluent. I think the term preppy came from the idea that they tried to dress like they'd spent the weekend studying or prepping, perhaps on a yacht. Or maybe they were pretending their family was affluent enough to have sent them to an actual Ivy League prep school. Do you remember the, sh the boat shoes of the thing? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mentioned shoes boat shoes and, and popped colors. And the, I was about to say the collars and the boat shoes and all that yeah. shit, yeah. Popped collars, carefully side-parted medium-length big hair, jeans, golf and rugby shirts, and boat shoes, all with expensive labels. Girl preppies could dress as the guys did and also do huge hair with waterfall bangs, stir up pants with big sweaters over their hips, blazers with large shoulder pads, or extremely frilly collared narrow-hip dresses. Prep dominance came from verbal wit and subtle put-downs involving people's social class or brains. Jocks were more like preps, but maybe without the brains and family income or certainly the academic ambition. Being a jock was more of a guy thing when it came to being cool. Playing girls' sports didn't make girls nearly as cool as being a fan or outright cheerleader for boys' sports did. Being a jock mainly meant being as large across the shoulders as possible and perpetually wearing sports jerseys, if not with one's own name on them, then someone famous's. 
Jock hairstyles ran the gamut from proto-mullets to military cuts. Jeans were nearly as tight as the stoners. Jock dominance came from tormenting anyone smaller, less physically mature, and implying that they might be gay or a virgin, which was seen as more or less the same thing. Pretty much only jocks used the weight room at school. It was closely connected with sports teams winning shiny things from chasing balls around and running into each other a lot. Then, as now, sports was a surefire excuse for jocks to miss any number of classes and not know any number of things. Stoners were like jocks who didn't play sports much at all. They wore a lot of denim and leather jackets, concert t-shirts, shirts with the sleeves ripped off, and had the longest hair. They had the tightest jeans of all. You didn't have to have huge shoulders to be a stoner, but it helped. They were the most likely to have an earring, neck chain, or other bling of that kind. They were largely about advertising how much they liked hard rock or heavy metal, having sex, and doing drugs. Rockers were a subset of stoner that were even more into loud music than getting stoned. Often, these various stoner pursuits were advertised on their leather or jean jackets, sometimes in liquid paper and magic marker. They almost universally smoked. They seldom came from affluent homes. I remember them having Judas Priest or Cheech and Chong buttons on their jackets. I remember the concert tour shirts, which were black but with white three-quarter length sleeves and white ringer colors. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Def Leppard, ACDC, and Metallica were popular, though some people had Rush or Led Zeppelin or maybe even Bon Jovi. Stoners generally let on that they'd been in every tour they had a shirt for, but I wondered. If someone had dropped acid or taken shrooms before physics class, it was likely to be a stoner. I don't have any specific memory of anyone I knew in high school using acid. I, I don't do. remember. Now, the interesting thing is that a little time before the church thing happened, a few of us had decided that maybe it would be fun to take a little LSD to make the trip home a little more interesting. I had a couple of friends who specifically dropped acid at school. So by the mm. time the bus came and they and they they came up to me and they're like, do we look different? Do we look different? Because they were totally tripping and seeing tracers and stuff. So but huh. so so to my mind, like things have changed that I don't people do Molly now. People do thing people don't do acid around here anymore. Uh shrooms I think are are doing quite well around here. That transcended cool though. To me, you you weren't dropping yeah. acid if you were cool. You that you were like that was yeah. a different thing. If you looked into the door of the wood welding electricity or auto shop classroom, stoners were more than usually represented in there, and it was nearly one hundred percent male students. Rap hadn't quite hit my school yet, and only a few stoners also belonged to the subset of skater punks. Interestingly, when I used the word stoner, I was thinking of rocker, headbanger, metalhead stoners. Dennis, 16 and 6'2", cupping a cigarette to light it in the wind and then smoking it no-handed with a blonde mullet, earring, white sneakers, painted on jeans with a bandana around one thigh, wallet on a chain, spiked wristband, Iron Maiden concert tee under a jean jacket, lovingly decorated with music and drug-related adornment, arm in a cast sticking out of one unbuttoned denim sleeve from the fight he'd gotten into on the weekend with a guy who was 30, with his other arm tossed casually over the shoulder of Kim, a busty girl with enormous hair dyed black, Heavy eye makeup and an outfit that matched Dennis's perfectly, apart from a pair of little black suede pointed toed boots. I knew Dennis was nasty and dangerous and going nowhere fast, but I really kind of loved his clothes, also his girlfriends. Though being the female equivalents of Dennis, they tended to be of the five kids and 50 more pounds by 25 group. When I said stoners, Troy, though, immediately, given the artsy town in which he grew up, pictured neo hippie stoners instead of rockers when I mentioned them. 
Apart from doing a lot of drugs and wearing denim and bandanas around their head, bicep, or thigh, that was a whole different kind of stoner thing. Yeah, I would definitely think that and thrift clothes. Getting the liquid paper out and painting ACDC on your jean jacket. Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of that. Um, certainly the um, certainly the type of people that, yeah, definitely wore a lot of like thrift clothes, like old, like a yeah. vest, like an old, you know, vest type of thing as just an accessory. Um, certainly headbands, like yeah. uh, kind of thing. Like for sure, like they were pretty much a, an interpretation of what a, a hippie was in the 60s and the 70s. And it's weird because... There was the jocks who were going around intimidating people, and there were these alpha stoners that would fight them. Yeah, there always was the occasional, like I, one in particular guy, he was, um, by the time I, we were in high school, and we were 15, he was probably 6'6", six, six, mm-hmm. and he worked on a farm, and he was huge, but he was like a big stoner guy, and yeah. it was like, he, you never had to worry, the stoners would never have to worry about ever being picked on, because he was bigger than any jock, and it's just like, you don't want to pick that fight mm-hmm. because you don't know what's going to happen to you because he's that big. Like, he's just this huge yeah. guy, but super friendly. Love him to death. And he could have been a hick, like on Letterkenny, but he probably advertised the bands that he listened to and stuff like that. Yeah, he was definitely... He got into, like, things like Pink Floyd and the Stoner yeah. bands of that era. So I think, yeah, he kind of, like, was just a hippie who was just a huge dude. Like, I watched him. Mm-hmm. And a couple of fights in public school, and they ended rather quickly because he oh, yeah. just picked them up and tossed them. And it was like, I think we're done here. This like, was a time when people watched professional wrestling and thought that those moves would be really useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've definitely watched a few of those yeah. uh, fights. I also watched people who were street fighter type folks, like yeah. not the video game, but as in the classical. I know how to fight on the street and I watched them fight people who thought they knew how to fight and get ended very quickly as a result. Yeah. Uh, You know, small town fighting is a big source of entertainment. What about fighting? Do you remember the kids going out? Remember that arch where the old school they tore down beside the high school? And do you remember that was a place people would go and get into a fight? Was it cool? I mean, I always respect physical prowess, as you know, I still, I mean, I, and later on in life, I did a lot of martial arts and shit like that. I still lift weights. I'm still interested in physical ability. So to me, you know, it, you know, it was part of a rite of passage to get into a few fights and that sort of thing. And I kind of thought it, it's kind of stupid to say now as an adult, say it was cool to get into a fight, but kids that would get into a fight and fight, I always have, does that have any place here? There were individual fights and there were always disagreements between people and any high school i'm sure there's a few kids who have a bit of a hot temper and don't get along and end up yelling at each other or fighting outside the school but as like a designated us against them i don't know if it's just we didn't have enough people for that or just that didn't hit our high school or what but that wasn't my experience really at all there was like a group of guys who thought it was cool to be the toughest guy and get in fights and interesting and i i don't think you had that no like there were big guys and there were guys who worked out a lot. We would have thought, I think it's somebody like that sort of a, like a meathead, right? Like just they're big and they're hot tempered and nobody wants to hang out with them because they're, you know, maybe because you're scared. Like, I, I don't, I don't really know what the reason would be, but no, like, I, I don't think, I think there was still peacocking. I think there was still guys trying to be cool. Um, and so it would come up in other ways. It would come up in who could drink the most maybe would be one way or, or who would try maybe the furthest along drug, like in terms of intensity or something. There might be guys who were, you know, trying to get with the mo- the largest number of girls or the best. Oh, girls. yes. Yeah, there was absolutely a, 
one way to win would be to, you know, have as many sexual partners or flings or whatever going on. And I mean, that's like, I'm in my early twenties now. So thinking about that, that's crazy. Cause like, I think of high schoolers now as children, but yeah. when you're that age, you don't think of yourself as a child. You think of yourself as a budding adult, right? And is that like a short-term or a long-term thing? So when, when there's those guys that have been making their way through the student body, um, are they only cool kind of for a month or are they cool for like five years? I think that all of the things that we sort of cared about back then uh, sort of don't, don't even get brought up when I see these guys now. So I think it sticks around for high school, but it doesn't stick around long after. So you don't think they're still behaving that way when they're 25? What's interesting is the people I know now, obviously, at one point went to a different high school and had their own high school dynamics and whatever. And maybe if I knew them back then, I wouldn't like them much now. But the, the, the sorts of people from high school who I found annoying, I'm not spending time with those people anymore. I, I think you're talking peer pressure, quite frankly. Yeah, and, so, and it doesn't stop that, in high school, does it? Oh, no. Uh, it never stops. I, I mean, life, life just gets less tacky, but Stacey, it doesn't change much. I know people and yeah, not naming names and some some a lot of people that you you would know obviously yeah. that you know basically what other people think of them is so important that that becomes anything trivial to what they're going to wear or where they're going to go on a vacation to something more serious. There's a fair amount of, a lot of people out there that are so easily swayed and so insecure mm-hmm. um, that other or or so worried about what other people think that they're easily swayed and they and they and they kind of go like the wind when it comes to making decisions or doing something and they're very 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 concerned and they're very very influenced by others. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even addressed by the Bible, like what you just said was basically from the Bible that um, the Bible speaks disparagingly of people that are like leaves blown to and fro in whatever gust of wind comes away. And it was saying, don't be that. I still find there's groups. Like I know I said earlier, I didn't think there were group fighting, but I think some of the groups of friends that happened in high school have maintained. So I still see some of my high school friends, but like the groups back then that maybe I wasn't sort of a a large player in, I'm still not like, I've I've never made it into those groups in part because of interest. I'm assuming you saw fist fights at school. I saw one or two. Yeah. One between two guys and then one between two girls. And that's not as many. So when I went to high school, it was pretty common and I got into one even. Okay. Um, but I think that we have cracked down on bullying. The The perception of violence is like we, we had knives at school that nobody worried that we do anything with them and we didn't do anything with them. Um, mm-hmm. The school had a competitive rifle team and we didn't worry about that. Um, <laughs> our school was good with rifle competitions things have very much changed i taught the school that you eventually went to before you ever arrived and Mm -hmm. to begin with there was there were major fist fight problems and when social Mm -hmm. media hit one of the first things they started doing was like cphs fight club they were thinking like can we make like a reality tv show where you check your social media it tells you where the fight's going to be and you can go watch the fight and unfortunately it was mostly wishful that they were trying to make people fight that they wanted to see fight who didn't want to fight right and of course, they didn't know that teachers were looking at their social media and sending the principal where the fight was going to be. And so that, that didn't work very well. Um, right. Yeah. People weren't, well very, weren't very smart about using <laughs> technology and keeping the adults out <laughs> of it. I was saying stoners and I was thinking rocker stoners, like what you're talking about. And when I said mm-hmm. stoners, Troy's younger. He's from Perth. So he was thinking neo hippies. So I'm thinking guys that smoke cigarettes and play guitar and listen to metal music. Troy's thinking about what we were people. Just describing. 
Yeah, Troy, Troy is instead a little bit younger, different town, a little more hippie. So when I say stoner, yeah. Troy's picturing people wearing a headband and having beards and uh, listening to 60s huh. rock and roll and completely different. I think that if you were to look at what everyone else thought was cool, it would be it would be kids that were involved in rock music. It's like I'm thinking like a John Ryder for some reason. This just yeah. popped in my mind. Played like, guitar in a band. Played guitar. You had you had the you had the hair that you kind of have right now, right? You kind of had like you kind of had the long hair. You played you played guitar. You know you 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 you, you wore the t-shirts. You had the skinny jeans. You often the work boots or the certain look with the sneakers, if you recall. Like there was a look. Yeah. Right. There was a look you kind of conformed to. Um, you know, I think to be cool, you had to use marijuana, of course, right? You kind of smoking yeah. pot was cool. Smoking cigarettes was cool for a lot of people, um, which I always thought was, as you know, completely ridiculous. I still yeah. do. There was a certain sect that thought that was cool. And then there was athletics, of course. I mean, there was yeah. a certain side of, of if you were on the wrestling team or the football team, you were generally pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, of course, you remember the football players dressing up and all the girls who went on over the dressed up football players on, on game day and all that stuff. Yeah. And I remember sitting back going, yeah, let's, you know, my pride would never let me do it. But if I could do high school all over again, I would have, I would have done some of those things. Yeah. But back then I always thought I was too good for those mother Yeah. And, and I wanted kind of nothing to do with it because I was, because I was kind of more of a rebel as opposed to trying to be cool. I was trying to rebel against everything. I, I paid a heavy price for that. But I would say that that's how I would describe cool. The music piece or the athlete piece was a big part of it. And I, I think it's important that you know this. I never felt any shame or shame's the wrong word i never felt any like awkwardness being great friends with yourself and debbie or and knowing people in the meeting or Mm -hmm. having associating with people in the meeting i never felt the need to hide any of that or or felt the need that if someone's judging me because i'm hanging around with these meeting kids or these religious kids i never give a sweet about that yeah but i think if you wanted to be really cool you probably couldn't be associated with the meeting i think if if you wanted to be really cool you couldn't play dungeons and dragons if you run, yeah. there was a very small definition of cool. Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes, being from the Canadian Prairie Midwest, wanted to be a rock star all right when he was in high school, but he wasn't really a hard rocker or metal guy when it came to how he dressed, not even as much as Brian Adams in his leather jacket and spiky hair. One of the, the things I tell my students, because obviously, you know, they could say, well, when are we going to use this or why do we have to learn, like for doing Macbeth or something like that? Why do, why do we need to do that? And I tell them that it would be nice to think that life is not really going to have any darkness. You won't have loss. You won't have death in your life or illness or whatever. But in fact, you will. And math, word problems and geography and gym aren't really going to prepare you for that. And so really all that we have to offer you is history. And then the arts, when the arts is like a safe secondhand way to explore how this might feel and to imagine it in advance. I was telling them it's not going to be enough, but it's something. Oh, I think that's great. I think it's great that you're sharing that with, you know, kids in, in high school. Cause I mean, it's just like, I think a lot of times people, when you're young and you're, especially if you're dealing with depression or, or things that are making you feel not good, there's a kind of a safe space within music, mm-hmm. I find. You know, and I find, I discovered that and I found other friends in high school and we we all kind of discovered that there's a safe space in music. It helps you to deal with things. It helps you to create a bit of a social uh, circle or, you know, it's just there's all sorts of massive improvement for you and therapy for you available through music. If you want to, you know, it really helped me. It helped me massively through high school. I think that's what a lot of people were getting from sports. 
And I wasn't getting that. And in fact, I mean, I wasn't lucky enough to be in like a rock band in high school, um, but I was just in the brass band. But even so, like when everyone, you all work together and you tease each other when you make mistakes and, and you're creating something together. Oh, for sure, man. For sure. I, I mean, I was in the band, the junior high band in grade seven and eight playing the trumpet. <laughs> same really same here. But it was, I, I played uh, the last post for Remembrance Day when I was older. Oh, wow. Well, you you would have been good. I, I was just sort of... A, it wasn't that good. But... I kind of picked it up. And then, and then by grade nine, I stopped. You know, I have nieces, though, that continued playing in the, the band through high school. And they got to go on, like, cool trips. Like, they went to, like, New York and yeah. <laughs> and all over the place. You know, like, they, they, they did cool stuff, which I was somewhat envious of. Churches like mine were absolutely fine with us playing in the high school brass band if we wanted, so long as band practice wasn't on a meeting night. Stricter families like mine, though, didn't allow us to go on any overnight band trips or to band camp, though, because they'd heard the sort of things that tended to happen. Oh, and this one time at band camp, I stuck a flute. Emily's church, being charismatic, saw music and dance as things done for worship. I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, my church, there's absolutely no one did dancing, but I'm assuming that church dancing was very heavily asexual. I'm assuming that was like the a point of a lot of it was to like, like natural dancing and move your body. And I suspect that a, a part of it was to make sure that no one moved certain parts of their body. Very much. And I mean, the, the costumes were extremely modest, to mm-hmm. use that word, Um as women, we were swathed from head to toe and there had to be like no inkling that you had curves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was definitely focused on being as modest and as asexual as you put it as possible. But that's not to say that it wasn't beautiful. There were a lot of these dances that were absolutely gorgeous, but there was definitely a criteria that it had to fit. I know in my church, Women, young women were encouraged to attract men, but in a very specific, limited way. They're supposed to be pleasant and attractive, but not sexual. Again, you're supposed to look after yourself. You're supposed to dress up nice, do your hair and all that. You're supposed to make an effort to be appealing, but not too appealing. There's a like, do it, but how we, how we want you to do it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I remember being pulled aside and being told wearing what I realize now when I look back was absolutely normal clothing, like not clothing that was immodest or shocking in any way, but um, being pulled aside and being told, you know, your goal right now is not to be sexy for the person that you're um courting or whatever your goal is to be like a godly representation of what a wife would be like type idea so you know your your goal right now is to look godly not to look just for a moment imagine the little lectures that the guys were getting that girl looks sexy and that's not what you want to marry not someone you're physically attracted to don't think about sex and don't think about physical attraction you have to look at something deeper and more important. You know, she weighs 300 pounds, but she likes to eat. So maybe she can cook and that would be useful in a wife. And this, this is the sort right. of lecture that we had is you're, you're overlooking all of these, these girls who appear to come from uh, the shallow end of the gene pool uh, because you're not thinking about marriage. You're thinking about, you know, will we have beautiful children and you're not supposed to be doing that. And I tend to think that on a very deep, evolutionary or physical level a lot of what we are doing is we're looking for people with good genes 
we're looking for people that we think would mix well with us and we'd have some great kids and right well i agree uh, um with the uh bit about the lectures that guys were receiving because i did talk to some of my male friends which i mean even having male friends was like ooh taboo you shouldn't be doing that though. yes and the guys um our clothing wasn't about modesty it was about affluence it was about business casual in my experience anyway is if you tried to dress trendy in a way that didn't reek of the office that was not how you should be dressing and so although the women had to cover up their bodies the men we we had to conceal our sexuality almost 100 percent. it didn't matter whether you were gay or straight not supposed to see it um mm -hmm. it doesn't come out until you're married it's it's not so most of us didn't even see men flirting with women or complimenting women uh, and when we saw it we were jealous we didn't know how to do that yeah. If you wanted to fit in at Young People's, you weren't allowed to be most forms of cool. But for some reason, being preppy was okay. The boat shoes was okay at Young People's. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that's fair. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. You certainly couldn't show up in your Metallica t-shirt with a rope no. clip in your pocket or anything. Natalie's Mormon youth group, instead of forbidding their teens listening to secular music and going to the high school dances, simply had competing energetic teen dances of its own. Were, were you involved in like organizing and facilitating the social stuff or was it just there for you to oh, enjoy? For sure. Oh, no. Yeah, this is why. Because if, if you want to make somebody, you know, have a good time, it really helps if you have some say. Yeah. Oh, no. It was all led by us. We had a leader, but it was pretty much all in our hands, which is probably why I went to become a teacher because I like being crafty with things and making stuff up as I go and seeing what I can do with very little. This makes a lot of sense. I can't imagine I would ever have been allowed to like be in charge of anything social. Mm. And that probably really made No, I remember DJing a dance once because we didn't like the old man DJ. They brought in, I'm like, I'll do it. We weren't allowed to dance or have pop music. That's right. <laughs> so that didn't happen. But, I, you know, I learned to play guitar and there's sort of a cheap thing that you're not supposed to listen to pop music, but if you wrote it, and it had vaguely Christian lyrics, how could they really complain? When I was a kid, I was confused. I thought that maybe I was supposed to be a boy and mm -hmm. I wasn't a boy, you know, and I couldn't understand why I wasn't allowed like wear pants or wear boys clothes or like play with boys toys, you know, things like that. But no one told me that I was gay. So I was just like, oh, I'm like the wrong gender. Mm -hmm. So I struggled with that as, as a kid and, you know, felt very displaced. And, you know, as I got older, I realized, oh, well, you know, I'm just a lesbian. Like, I... Mm -hmm. There's a few of you in the world, apparently. Yeah, it's just a couple. But, you know, none that I... Well, I mean, I, I did know many, just no one told me that that's what they were. Right. And most of that were related to me. But... <laughs> so once again, you would think being a straight white guy, that should be simple. Yet, I, I had any number of people say I was gay. And rather than being cool with that, I always took that as like, how am I going to get girls to like me if they all think I'm gay? And you know how easy it is to be considered gay in, in a church group like that. Um, like it was like being an English teacher or liking music or any of it, uh, you know, you know what you're supposed to do. You're, if you're me, you're supposed to love playing volleyball for six hours on Saturdays oh, and hockey. And, and I was a lesbian. I didn't even want to do any of that stuff. So nope. I couldn't look anywhere I <laughs> I, I just have such a clear memory of the things that were supposed to be for us. And like, I don't like yeah. any of this stuff. I definitely no. didn't like the volleyball. And no, um, I didn't want to play sports. Ugh. 
<laughs> no. At the same time, though, I think there's also something to be said for self-confidence. And yeah. I feel like I've always been kind of confident. And so even though I looked pretty dorky and weeby, like I, I look a little bit like an old woman in middle school. I had a headband, glasses that were a little too small for my face and a low bun every single day. And yet I did manage to make friends and even with, uh, you know, some cheerleaders and more maybe people who might have been cooler or whatever. Not because people respected me because I was smart. I didn't try too hard. Like I didn't, there were also people, for example, who might have looked just as dorky or dweeby, but they were also, they reeked of desperation. Right. <laughs> and so that's a huge turn off for people. Whereas I was comfortable enough, I guess, in who I was or what my, where my strengths lay that people at least respected me, even if they didn't necessarily consider me cool or whatever. In my experience, when you just kind of go out there and you just say like, Fuck it, this is me. Yeah. You know, what did I have to lose? Like no one understood who I was and did it because like, what else was I supposed to do? No one got me. You know what I mean? No one knew at all who I was. Was it like you had some kind of a vision or a direction that you could feel and you just knew that if you went down that path, you'd get somewhere? Yeah, I guess. I just knew how I felt. You know what kind of worked for the Pikes? By the time we went to do the second indie EP in 1985, we had kind of thrown caution to the wind in terms of trying to follow what might be a trend or something at that time. No matter what happens with music, you know, it'll ebb and flow in terms of certain styles and certain directions, but nothing will ever replace being in a room. And there's an excitement with a rock band in a yeah. room, yeah. you know, from you knowing that live humans are playing those things right there. Jay and his bandmates sounded a bit new wave and looked very preppy for rock and roll musicians of the time. Back then, there was a lot of gigs available. If you could play it in small towns, and you know, you play the Elks Hall, or you play a high school dance, or things like that. And uh, we were quite freaky for a lot of the people there. I think you know, it was <laughs> just short hair and playing a lot of unknown. Although at the end of it all, it was just energetic rock music. Let's face yeah. it; that's really what it was. So your image looked quite clean cut in the idols. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we all we were like everybody, young people who like to, you know, you like to have a few drinks and you like to have fun. And I went to high school in a time when punk music and mohawks and anarchy had largely died out. Yet goths, though we had a small group of them, were barely in the public eye in our rural parts enough for us to have our stereotypes about them straight or even know what they really were called yet. You can see Ali Sheedy's character in The Breakfast Club showing every sign of the gender-questioning, depressed, self-harming, eating disorder-having, black-figure-concealing, clothes-wearing thing going on, but lacking a group to stand with, all wearing slight variations on a fashion intended to announce their collective individuality, generally involving strategically buzzed and hairsprayed dews, dyed eye-catching colors with an enormous amount of mascara and eyeliner. We had, like, four of those. Didn't know what they were or what to call them. They weren't at school much anyway, as they tended to stay in their bedrooms. These were the kids we expected not to make it to 20. We still have them at modern high schools, looking virtually unchanged, making emotional instability a competition as well as an identity. But they seem to have kicked straight people and gay boys out of the club entirely at some point. I've always considered myself non-binary. Um, Would you say that this is more about being more male or being not female? I think it's more about not wanting or having to fit what somebody else thinks of me. 
it's, especially it's, about female expectations are pretty heavy, aren't they? No, not going into that. Um, like, like my assumption is not that you want to be a man. Like, I don't think that's what it is at all. That's a different thing no. that some people have. That That's a different thing that some people experience. The kind of conclusion that I've reached in my own self journey of being comfortable with myself and like on a lot of different topics like mental health and um, gender is that I don't owe anybody gender conformity or gender nonconformity. There are people who think that if you are non-binary, then you have to dress like a non-binary person, regardless of what that actually means. But like, I don't owe anybody anything in that way. It doesn't sound like you win a lot of freedom by just joining a different system. (laughs) Right now you have to be female and then now you have to be non-binary. It's just a separate list of expectations. Besides goths, Hicks didn't really carve a niche for themselves at our school in the 80s. Though our school had a lot of rural kids, new country had yet to happen, and people like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson seemed almost gone for good. Rural seemed to go with poor and low class in many people's heads, so a lot of rural kids hid their backgrounds. Even Dolly Parton seemed to have gone mainly into acting in the 80s. Shortly after I graduated high school, though, Canadian Hicks started to stand loud and proud, listening to Garth Brooks and Shania Twain, wearing cowboy or work boots, John Deere hats and work shirts to school and everywhere else, and putting American flag stickers on their pickups, for which they'd made gun racks in woodshop, though you can't drive around with your shotguns out permanently on display in your pickup in Canada. But back when I was in high school, Hicks either tried to blend into the other cliques or kept their mouths mostly shut about loving old Stomp and Tom Connors, Kenny Rogers, and Merle Haggard tapes, and whether they were doing hay or driving the manure spreader after school. A guy at our church who'd grown up working a farm full-time and would go on to continue down that career path owned, as far as I could tell, a single Ralph Lauren polo rugby shirt, yellow as I recall, and for a while there he wore it to every youth group event as preppy was really the only approved fashion choice for Plymouth Brethren kids. If you wanted to blend, you needed a polo rugby shirt. That or a Laura Ashley dress if you were a girl. Yeah, because Ralph Lauren, that polo shirt was iconic. I remember wanting one desperately because I, I saw it as, well, that's that's what that's what you have to have. Never could We could never afford that. It was too much money. And I made so a rude parody a of one. it. I, very characteristically, I despised it because I was thinking, like, who are you to tell me what kind of shirt I should be wearing? So I wore a black shirt and I got white T-shirt paint and made a little Ralph Lauren polo icon. But if you looked at it, instead of a man riding a polo horse, it was a man sitting on the back of a polar bear clubbing it over the head. And it was Rolf Lauren polar. Oh, I, see, I think I remember cause, this. Because I, I resented preppy. I wanted to be more of a rocker or stoner kind of like I thought that stuff was cool. I wanted to be a musician. And none of that was like... No one was doing that. You're supposed to be the sort of musician that like wears a sweater and smiles a lot. If the girls didn't want to dress in a dress, they could do relatively normal preppy outfits at youth group if they substituted a jean skirt for jeans and wore a headscarf or tam during church services. Well, I remember it being tricky for me um, when I was still wearing a skirt all the time because that was a dead ringer that, okay, she's a little different. She's got this jean skirt on. She's wearing a rugby shirt and that's kind of in style, but she always wears this jean skirt down to her like ankles. So it was a bit awkward for me, but then I started um, 
I think I started playing basketball and I got a, a basketball a pair of sweats and, and jacket. So I had pants for the first time and could justify wearing them. And that's when I started creeping in towards more of the popular crowd. But they were confused because I had all the markings of a really popular kid, good at sports, you know, friendly, whatever. And but I wasn't allowed to do any of the parties. I wasn't allowed to, you know, there were big gaps in Mm -hmm. in basically my experience. And so and I didn't want to be popular because I looked at them and I was like, there's too many things that they do that I can't do. And I'm going to have to come up with a million excuses just to try to fake fitting in. I don't want that pressure. So I chose to hang in the, I would say the middle group, like in, in high school, there was the table at the front. The first two were popular. Then the middle two were like the middle people. And then the last two were like the, you know, grubs, people called them the the grubs. Maybe they had BO or like, you know, didn't have a lot of money or whatever it was. So I was in the middle and I just, I definitely remember playing some sports and having an invite to the first two tables and declining because I knew that I I couldn't do everything they were doing and I was going to have to feel awkward. So, And when we weren't actually at high school, when we were at Young People's, um, different people have talked about the fact that at Young People's, you were supposed to be like the brethren version of the jock preps. All the other cliques were close to you. It sounds like you're you're saying that if you had been very popular and very enmeshed in the social scene at school, that would have been viewed as not a very Christian way to be. Probably, yeah, because if the world loves you, obviously you're not being Christian enough. Mm. But the meeting had its own hierarchy of cool. Oh, yeah. You know, I think about when I think about the kids that were the cool kids in the meeting, they were the kids that whose families had uh, big cottages on Riedel Lake. And yeah. I remember Lake. going to his cottage and it was a beautiful house on Riedel, not a cottage, a house. It was beautiful. On yeah. You know, I, I remember young people's being very much divided between the Smith Falls um, young people and then the Rito Fair young people. They were automatically like cooler. Um for whatever reason, I think there was a money factor. There was definitely a lot of status with money in, mm-hmm. in our group. Um, so if you had, you know, if your dad was a doctor and you had a cottage and, you know, you, you had a good tan in the summer and you went boating and everything, then you were pretty much it. And then um, in the Smith Falls group, none of us really, if I think about all of the young people in the Smith Falls group, no one had a lot of money except for the Kurs and they moved to Rita Ferry because that's mm-hmm. where everybody with the boats and everything, everyone lived. So I think there was a definite like there were definite cliques within that group. And it was pretty apparent who the top dogs were. I don't know if it's on purpose, but um, sometimes when you're at a conference, this is back in my teenage years, and you'd have a whole circle of people and you try and squeeze in. Sometimes you'd get some weird looks or what are you doing here or um you just don't fit into the social circle so hang on hang on but i yeah. figured this guy he had a pretty girlfriend whose name was and he was that's, he was that's the asshole yeah they well, they were like at the top of the cool hierarchy right to yeah. me they were always they were they transcended cool outside the meeting because they were kind of cool in high school too yes they were because they were jocks yeah. actually and played hockey and football these were the main cliques there were ways of fitting into one and thus being 80s cool. Nerds were the catch-all clique for not 80s cool people. 
There was no nerd chic at this point. Bill Gates wasn't a household name. Preppies had too much money, designer labels, and style to be mistaken for nerds, but either preppies or nerds might be very academically inclined, and that distinction was a fine one. Grubs, though, were a subset of nerd who clearly came from poor families and didn't wash or launder their overworn clothes much. They might wear stained sweatpants and t-shirts for several days in a row, their hair looking slept on and uncombed. What was the difference between a grub and a skid then? We didn't use the word skid. I think that skid replaced the word grub. Uh, and I, I mentioned that there was these kids. I remember and, both. And the, the grubs tended to be, they tended to be poor and they, they wouldn't bathe. And they'd come to school wearing the same greasy pair of sweatpants four days in a row and their hair, they'd been yep. sleeping on it for days. And nothing against them. And that didn't mean that they weren't smart or wouldn't do well in school, but they, they were not yeah. trying to be cool. And they didn't have they the were money. Poor. They were just poor. poor. They didn't have the money to be cool. Nerds mostly look like their moms had been allowed to dress them in the fashions of yesteryear or from the bargain bins at Zeller's, Giant Tiger, or Kmart, having seen the softer side of Sears. Admitting a liking for anything in the nerd category meant you had now fallen from the loftier heights of one of the other cliques. So comic books, superheroes, Star Wars, Star Trek, Dungeons and & Dragons, and computer games, differentiated very much from arcade machines or home console systems, were things that if you admitted liking, let alone wore what merch there was for it in adolescent rather than child sizes, literally got you called gay and shoved into lockers or walls hard. In our school, actually being gay didn't get you called gay. Music class and band had more nerds than any other clique, but band also had preps in it, with the occasional lone stoner playing trombone and wishing the school taught guitar so he could learn to play like Joe Satriani. too much of a nerd to be a goth, though when I started wearing a lot of black and staying in my room gaunt and pale as a ghost, writing poetry about death, people wondered. I suppose I was a superhero and science fiction-loving Dungeons and Dragons computer nerd who was in band, wore preppy fashions but in black, and wished I could look like more of a rocker but listen to old people's music. Troy and I think back to a time when there simply wasn't a way to like Spider-Man, Luke Skywalker, Doctor Who, Mr. Spock, or Frodo Baggins and not get laughed out of the room as a childish, immature person who'd be living in his parents' basement until he was 30. It's a different world now. Uh, speaking of that, you mentioned role-playing. Um, we need to tell people younger than us about the before times <laughs> when superheroes, comic books, Star Wars, Star Trek, Dungeons & Dragons, and computer games just made you incredibly uncool. Oh, definitely. Well, it's funny because uh, I would learn secretly that every once in a while, like the people who were cool, usually because they were well off, they tended to own computers and play these things, but yeah. it was not something you advertised. It was no. like almost a secret thing that I, I definitely remember being surprised. It's like, wait a minute, you're the cool person, but you're in here wanting to play a, yeah. a game on an Apple uh, computer, so yeah, definitely. Like, if you were into role playing, oh man, you were done. Yeah, and this is a time when Star Wars was gone. Yeah, certainly. Like, Return of the Jedi was years before, and there was no more coming that we knew of. So, Star Wars was like this old thing. It's an old thing. The only thing you had was maybe a couple books. Yeah, like they had the books. But, and, but, but cool, cool people didn't read the Star Wars books. No, 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 no. Star Wars was an old like. Oh, you've got to be a a super geek or Star Trek because there's. Yeah. I mean, uh, we had Next Generation kind of in the periphery, but. It was definitely a 
a thing that was like, yeah, you associated those with nerds and, and undesirable people. And also, in most cases, most people's parents weren't introducing them to Dungeons and Dragons or <laughs> or Star Wars. Like, that was something you did on your own and your parents didn't get it. Yeah. I thought it was dumb. Being a nerd meant being a little child. But they were all f***ing stoners, to be honest, right? They all yes. Used, the, pre- the preppy guys used drugs. The the, the, the the athletes probably used less drugs than they certainly indulged. And, mm-hmm. and of course, the, the music guys used a lot of drugs. So, but there was those, but when you think of cool in our area, in our specific town, in our very small environment that we lived in, that would be what were the cool kids. And we could probably each name 20 kids that were cool. But yeah. they're all losers now, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so for me, one of the big ones was alcohol. People were always sort of shocked that I didn't want to drink, that I didn't drink. And the reason I thought there was a problem with it, um, just sort of philosophically, was that they had a problem with me not drinking. So if I came to a party and I wasn't drinking, it was like they they couldn't sit there and have me not drink. Right. So they they had a real problem with nonconformity. I, I think was was more what it was about. If you had never drank a beer and you're going to parties, they saw that as something they needed to fix. If you yeah, if uh, you ha- if you had passed out from a whole bottle of gin, that wasn't actually cool. There's sort of a Goldilocks area, and the thing about that Goldilocks area is it's it's sort of specific in its definition, right? If what people want is for you to fall in that area, that Goldilocks area, um, then what that means is that they want you to be a certain way. When I got to university, nobody cared that I wasn't drinking. A couple people approached me a few times and said stuff like, "Oh, you know, cool man, I really respect that," which was awkward and they didn't need to say i mean i i respect it that's that's the whole point it doesn't matter doesn't matter if you respect it was sort of my feeling i I relate because i was i was the musician who didn't smoke pot and so okay that that made me stand out and right mind you if you stand around with a bunch of musicians smoking pot you're basically smoking pot i can tell you but i never (laughs) you know i never indulged but um yeah people would comment on it mostly they thought that that was a wise choice but every now and then there was one of them that's like, come on, like, yeah, if you if you tried pot, it would make you so much easier for me to talk to, basically, is what they weren't saying. They're like, it'll right. make you more like me. It'll make you, it'll put you in a more relaxed frame of mind. You you think too much. A lot of people say that I think too much. And they were thinking that if I did pot, I would not be able to think as much. And so I would be more fun. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that pressure of you need to take drugs because you don't seem happy to me. You're not smiling enough. So you should take drugs musicians have tended to prescribe marijuana to me and uh, people in offices prescribe Prozac and none of them are qualified to be prescribing. Yeah. I think uh, the actual conversation that needs to be had and something that people need to consider when they're talking about drugs and mental health is, is that question of the intent behind prescribing them. Is it for making it possible for people who are struggling to have a better life, easier life, easier time dealing with their life? Or is it so that symptoms are smoothed over and you become able to assimilate into society and not bother other people? I'm trying to remember the first time I saw you drink alcohol. The first time I drank alcohol, you weren't there, but you jumped on the first opportunity. time I saw you, I think. Yeah. And so when, and it would have been at your, your apartment over the gas station and you were given beer Probably, yeah. and I, I annoyed you because you wanted me, uh, 
you wanted me to be walking around with a beer in my hand to fit in. Like you were thinking like, how, how can I help you fit in? And you're thinking like, here's right. a beer, put it in your hand. Everyone else has a beer in their hand, walk around with it. And I, for some reason was being mischievous that I found I was pretty good at chugging a beer. And although I wasn't getting drunk, <laughs> I think I could just chug it. So you gave me a beer. So wait till you turn your head, I chug the whole thing put it down and you're like where's your beer you're disappointed i'm like yeah i drank it and you're like what and you're mad because because <laughs> i just chugged this beer and didn't have one in my hand um you're doing anything you could to make me not stand out as like a plymouth brethren lad but the, this i probably this, quite frankly had your best interest in mind oh yeah i'm like sure yeah, i'm sure that there's a yeah this whole discussion about cool and what people wore or said or did or drank or didn't drink a lot of it's about people having trouble connecting to people who weren't being like them right and what's interesting is if you're a guy, I mean, you teach at a high school, so you know this as well as anyone. A lot of the guys look alike, not that facially they have similar characteristics, but they have a certain hairstyle or, or they or they wear a hat or they have certain clothes. And if you dropped into any random high school class, you'd find four or five guys who are all participating in it. Do you remember what the cool guys look like too? Not as much. I feel like guys stuff doesn't change that much no it also depended on the area so for example in middle school i was more of a diverse area and so there were a lot of black people there and you'd see more styles like baggy pants and stuff and they all probably play hockey if they're from where we're from and that's fine um girls seem to have it harder and and maybe there's not much we can say about that given that neither one of us lived that life but it seemed to be that they had to fit in in a certain way and look presentable and whatever, but they couldn't copycat the way that the guys could get away with. We could all dye our hair blonde for playoffs. That was fine. Um, they had to fit the style, but but have sort of their own spin to it. Do you think it's tribal? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to know where these things start, like on, on the individual level, like is it an older sibling or just each other? And I think the reason it's it's hard to put your finger on it is because it's it's everywhere, right? It's just culture. Like it's it's sort of a, a hard thing to, to to tease out. We were all taught growing up that you have to accept people however they are, right? So by their clothes or the different skin color or a different gender than you. Like I come from the education system where that was taught out. Like you're a terrible person if you're not going to be. And so they use the word tolerant. Being racist was not cool anymore. It wouldn't, right. get, it wouldn't get you friends or even a tribe of, of people. Um, and, it would and be very a, off-putting. A huge determining factor as to fitting in at school was how much money you had or didn't have. What did you have to do to be cool when you were in high school? What were the fashions and the, the things? Mm, well, I grew up in poverty. So uh, in, in my childhood, I, I was never bullied. Most people... Most children felt pity and sorry for me and were very helpful. I was the type of kid who's like staring at other people's lunches and wanting them to like give me some of it because their parents gave them all the cool sugary snacks and my mom gave me like cold leftovers and <laughs> cold did, spaghetti. That did sort you of... hint or did you ask them for food? I would ask, yeah, sometimes. Otherwise, I just kind of hint or, did I finish that? <laughs> <laughs> that's very annoying of me um did you score sugary food sometimes i think if you were techie smart or nerdy you might well find you had more in common with young computer and electronics teachers than with thugs who played football or liked binge drinking at field parties growing up i read like the ender series and so i put it in my head that um the teachers were my friends so i remember hanging out with the 
there was a an IT assistant that I hung out with at lunchtime, and so I was very much not a cool person in high school. Because you're too and, smart and too technical. Just didn't know how to fit in. I no clue. I tried. When uh, Mr. Weeks, our electronics program teacher, thought I was one of the smarter kids, so he gave me all the extra jobs to do around the class because I had more time than the others when they were <laughs> working their butts off trying to finish their assignments. I guess they didn't like me for that. Given that the song is about people trying to influence not only your style, but your life direction and decisions as well, I solicited comments about that. Tim mentions the strong pressure church groups hang over one's head to be in a married, straight relationship. Well, I was sober about five, six years. I married a woman. And I'll tell you, man, that was a mistake. That was joining right there. Right. <laughs> because I was, I was like, when are you getting married? When are you, you know, and I thought it was a thing I was supposed to do. I had financial problems. This girl had a little bit of money and security, and and I kind of got guilted into it with her. I I uh, I remember uh, I felt guilty, so I kept dating this gal. And uh, you know, the day I got married to her, I knew I was making a mistake. I knew it. I was like, mm -hmm. man, I shouldn't be doing this, you know. Right. And and uh, we stayed together for six years, and then we broke up. Chris mentions having relatives exert pressure until he ended a relationship with a brethren girl deemed to be too worldly for his family. Have you had that experience where people want to know how you're going to live your life and then they want to like influence it? It needs to go a certain way or they're not going to be happy. Oh, yeah. Um, when I was dating um, before Sherry, my family had a very big influence. They said, we don't approve and they shut it down, basically. If you tried to fight it, would that have helped? Sure, I could have gone ahead. I could have gotten married. But, you know, you do that at your own peril of your family being able to say, I was right, you're wrong. Or however, if it works out badly. Sherry mentions those matriarchal figures who seem to be safeguarding the direction of young brethren girls' lives. You had basically a meeting person who took a motherly role and tried to... Yeah help you and she was very um personable very charming she was very sweet you know she had uh seemingly a lot of love for the lord and it just flowed out of her and i just i really admired that about her she, was this something that she would do with other people a bit too like it was just her way yes for sure and definitely as i've grown older i actually don't admire that about her anymore i find it kind of manipulative <laughs> what she does what direction would she nudge people in just whatever she thought was right gotcha. so she currently leans very conservative she's fine with you know pants and makeup and dancing and all that sort of thing but she will think modesty is important and let's put it this way she she and her family are are ardent trump supporters gotcha the song that this is kind of part of says things like um be what you want Anything but what you are. Be more like me, and you could be a local star. Be who you want, anyone but who you seem to be. Why must you live your life so differently from me? Yes. Yeah, pretty much. She she would encourage you to do whatever, you know, to think the way she thinks, basically. It's not that she's doesn't pick up on when she should stop, but she will try her best. And she will stop when she needs to? Yeah. At least in one sitting, you know, she might bring it up again later. In theory... 
the meeting is like an entirely male dominated group yet i noticed female forces very active behind the scenes doing all sorts of sort of sculpting of people's lives mm-hmm. yeah i was i was watching a show a reality show about a one of those quiverful families and you know they preached male headship and whatever but in, in the last episode of the second season uh the mom tries to the oldest son is setting boundaries and the mom says something about asking the dad and she goes he's the head and he's like yes but you're the neck that controls which way the head moves and it's always that's the way it's always been john being raised in the strictest brethren group i've ever heard of was like us not allowed to get tattoos or piercings or attend school in cities with no brethren assembly there but was under a wholesale ban on virtually all post-secondary education This, along with being forbidden joining unions or working during any of the 11 or 12 church services per week, meant that John was not able to pursue his chosen career as a photographer until he left his brethren group, at the cost of losing virtually all contact with his family and childhood church friends. There was one family, and the girl um, started learning the piano, and she went to the highest grade by the age of 12. She She was a prostitute, she was a genius. Um, and but of course she wasn't allowed to carry on. I heard of another girl who, um, a secular school teacher, told me that she she would have gone on to to, to in, in a field of science to be extraordinary, and she was absolutely uh, extremely angry that that her parents forbid her to take A levels, which were advanced levels in school. She had to come out at the age of sixteen, and that was it. So yeah, so there were many many music, musically talented who were not allowed to. Uh, progress uh, and in many disciplines they were banned from um, continuing it. Could you play the uh, drums? Would uh, that be allowed that drums were okay or were drums of the devil? I don't remember ever hear, ever know, knowing anyone playing the drums so therefore I wouldn't be surprised. If this is why I'm asking because uh, in my group when people let's say decided to make a cassette tape of Christian hymns it was very bold that some people might put on an electronic drum beat or some kind of percussion or drums. And that was often very controversial as being completely disrespectful to put a beat on it. And there was the idea that drums were from Africa and had to do with voodoo and the occult and this kind of thing. And, you know, there's a lot of superstition around rock and roll in my group. There was anyway. Now, of course, rock and roll is for old people. Kim and I both shared the experience of how hard it is to connect with other teams when your dad is trying to be a big time preacher. You are a founding member of Like a Motorcycle. That's the biggest up-and-coming punk band, certainly on the Canadian East Coast. You've won an East Coast Music Award. You play bass, you sing, probably write songs too, I imagine. To say the obvious and respond to this any way you want or not, you weren't raised that you're supposed to do this, were you? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> what Can you tell more about that? I was raised in Smith Falls, Ontario. We were raised in a church. I call it the Brethren. My dad was a pastor and a missionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, we uh, lived a very strange life until I was 17. And then I, I came out to Halifax, where I've been based out of ever since. Mm-hmm. And that's the bones of the situation, I guess. You and I know what you mean by it was a bit strange, but just in terms of choices that were not yours to make, maybe you could sketch out some of the things that until you were 17 and went to Halifax, these were not options. Well, I mean, pretty much everything, you know, when I was really young, I think I at least felt like I had a pretty normal life. 
you know, my parents ran a business together and, you know, I was always surrounded by family and things seemed okay. Um, you know, we always went to church or the meeting as we called it on Sundays and, but you know, it didn't seem like a big deal. Um, but my dad, I apparently was called on by the Lord to do his work. So he, he sold our family's business and he decided he was going to travel around to all these groups of churches, gatherings, meetings, you know, mostly in Canada and the United States and later on elsewhere as well and preach and I don't know, give his two cents worth, I guess, on what he thought was, was good and right. And so when that happened, he took it upon himself to sort of, I think, have this certain standard for the way that he was living, at least from an outward appearance. So we were kind of, I think, just like, we were the, the pawns, you know, in that game of like, well, I have a wife and I have these kids and I need to support them. And, you know, so when you're giving me money, you know, paying for me to do this service, essentially, like take that into consideration. And so in turn, you know, we had to be a certain way, you know, dressed a certain way. And, you know, we weren't allowed to have like secular music or, you know, we didn't have a TV in our home, things like that. And so it was very, he wanted everything to look a certain way um, from someone looking in. At that point, things like took a turn for me as an individual and for my family dynamic as well. I really relate. Um, like my father didn't wasn't as successful. He probably wanted to be. But mm-hmm. I can say that he wanted to preach locally. And yeah. he kind of ratcheted up the standard. So over the course of my childhood, when I was five, we got rid of the TV, and it just kept getting worse that it ratcheted up more and more and more. I guess the word that I keep coming back to is performative. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like your yeah. the family becomes like a little traveling show and you have to dress a certain way. And when you said a certain way, I pictured you at age 12 or whatever. But for people who yeah. didn't know you, what are you supposed to look like when you're the daughter of a person like this? Well, you know, just very modest, you know, we had to wear like skirts or dresses or, you know, and and of course, during the meetings, we always had to wear hats or head Mm -hmm. covering. I mean, as a small gay child, it was like, that was a really hard part of it for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't identify as someone who would you know, even from a young age, as someone who wanted to wear a dress or like dress up or look pretty, you know, like I was a little tomboy and, you know, just like a little confused gay kid who was like, why do like what what is happening? Why do I have to do this? Like, I don't want to be doing this. Like, this makes me uncomfortable. But like no one I didn't know what that meant. You know, I didn't know to say like, you wanted to rock and roll, I, I imagine, from yeah. a young... How, how old were you when you also knew that you also wanted to rock out? Um, I mean, I think there was, like, always guitars at my grandparents' house. And, you know, I... I as Just to preface, like, as fucked up as my, like, immediate family and my home life was, I had amazing grandparents and aunts and uncles on both sides. And, mm-hmm. you know, they saved my life. Both of my grandparents, my grandfathers gave me guitars and like, yeah, just, you know, let me have that. And, Mm -hmm. 
little little kid who had a lot of feelings and that was like my only way to like get them out you know (laughs) i played trumpet in the band and i played the piano in the living room and when i went away to university i sort of knew that i wouldn't be allowed to play a trumpet or a piano you know living in an apartment so i bought an electric guitar my first guitar was like the cheapest electric guitar from sears catalog that you ever saw and the the amp was from radio shack actually have one oh my god yes let me see It's not a guitar amp. It's absolutely like, well, I mean, it can be used as one, but it's like not for that. And the weird part is if you turn it up, it really distorts up. So the thing was, I I didn't have any great aspirations. I just wanted to learn to play guitar and I wasn't even listening to very heavy music. And um, someone I won't name in the podcast who shall remain... Every time I wanted to learn guitar chords from him mm-hmm. or because he he is very gifted at music, I think. And as far as I know, he has a lot of training. I wanted mentors in guitar. I have an uncle who plays guitar. And, you know, there was a couple of guys um, who were middle aged when I was a teenager and they were in the Rito Ferry area and they played guitar and they sang and they did recordings with harmony vocals and all of these things. And so I thought this is going to work. I can ask them how to do it. And what I got from all of them was a fear that I might rock and roll, a fear that I was going to do worldly music. And so they were very disapproving. And the one guy in particular, every time I would like ask him how to play E minor, he'd say, are you going to get a, get a green mohawk or something like that? Because this is like code for you're going to do like scary punk music, aren't you? I don't have the voice for it. I feel like I didn't stick around long enough as a teenager or didn't insert myself long enough as a teenager for like people definitely said weird shit to me when I was a teenager but I think I had like at least mentally checked out yeah to to such a degree at that point that I was just like whatever like I knew I you know I had I had a foot out the door you know since I was quite young like I didn't struggle with this idea of like leaving the church or you know, have some sort of guilt or or I didn't have to like really sit with it or anything, you know, it's like, I think from a very young age, I was like, this doesn't add up. I just can't understand this version of God. I don't believe it. I'm unhappy. Like everyone around me is unhappy. And I was just like, I'm I'm out of here. Like, I'm not going to live my life. Like I gotta go try something else. And again, this is where I'm jealous because I was trapped in it. So like when they, I think they programmed into us a a fair bit of fear and shame about the idea of leaving. And that worked with me. It really did work with me. So I don't know quite how you did it. So when I was 17, I did not go to Halifax. I went to my bedroom and I lived, I lived in there for a couple of years and uh, I was profoundly suicidally depressed and I had no idea how to engage with anything. It was like, there was the meeting, which I just couldn't, I couldn't do and and it actually made it you know like divisions and things it actually made it worse that my father basically got ousted so it's like our whole family yeah. our whole family kind of got kicked out we didn't get kicked out literally but halfway out the door and then at school I didn't know what to do at school and you know I, I went to university and with all of it I didn't I wasn't supposed to connect at school so I didn't I was supposed to connect that meeting and I didn't so you know I, I felt like I had nowhere to be so I have this I'm sure that you've made it sound easier than it is, but the idea of being 17, knowing you're gay, knowing you want to do music, knowing where you want to live, knowing that you don't believe in this God, knowing all those things. I didn't know any of that stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, it's it's more, that is more cut and dry than it is for sure. You know, I still had to go through this whole process of finding myself. And I came out here, you know, and, and I was alone at first, you know, and I had to, yeah. I, I'm not saying it was easy, but it was, I knew I had made the right choice. I always kind of just like, when things were really hard, I just tried to like appreciate the fact that like I was, had the freedom essentially to do whatever I wanted. Johan has some interesting comments about the boundaries of free will, given how many things influence our decisions. I, I it, For me, it's very easy to compartmentalize whose opinion I care about and whose I don't. Um, and even with those that I, I love and care for very much, I understand that ultimately I get to decide for myself what good decisions look like and what bad decisions look like. And I'm always interested in input from people that I care about and people whose opinions I value, but I get to decide what is the best way that I can take advantage of the privileges that I've been given. Um, and I, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I, and I, I think that that philosophy um, is one that I sort of share with or try to spread to my own children, right? Like, I want to make sure that my kids have the tools to be able to make good decisions for themselves. And and I'm not much interested in trying to tell them uh, what to think, uh, more how to think. Do I want them to think some of the same things that I think? Yeah, of course I do. Do I, I want them to see things from my perspective? Why wouldn't I? And I hope that they do. And I like to think that if I come from a perspective that's rational and respectful that they will do that um, and that we will be similar in those ways. But I hope that they'll, uh, you know, be better, right? That's what you want. You want them to be able to make better decisions. Um, but in the end, I have to let them make those decisions for themselves. And that's something that's always in the back of my mind, even though they're pretty young right now. Cheryl from Facebook had a great comment about trying to let other people define your life direction for you. Uh, when you're around, whether it's the most popular person in school, an enlightened being in a spiritual group, you, oh, well, you know, I, I don't know, but you know. So I'm, I'm going to go into your shadow so you can show me really what you want is you want them to show you how to be you, but they can't show you that. All they can show you is how to be them. I asked Angel what she thought of Cheryl's comment. That's so true. And that's my biggest thing because I was like, how can I try to help people mm -hmm. without setting myself up as their leader? Because that was the thing that I was just like, my DNA is opposed to being a leader just because every leader that I have ever run across ever has been like the worst iteration of a human being. And what I realize is I want to help people realize that they are the source. I'm not the source you are. And the, the, the sooner you can recognize that the better it is for everyone. And my premise for my worldview for everything and, and everybody's healing journey is that a thing is made better or stronger by use of its own resource. So your brain will become better the more you use it. Your body will become stronger the more you use it. Everything gets better the more that you use your own resource. And if you try and leave your own resource behind and use mine, it doesn't make you better. You have to use your own facilities. I had to read uh, Plato's Republic back at school, and I don't remember much of it. But the one thing that what you just reminded me of is Plato was 
automatically suspicious of anyone who wanted power. Basically said, when you see someone who's looking to rule or to have power over a group, that's not normal and what everyone should be doing. It sort of identifies that if one person needs the power, watch that person. Everyone else is doing other things. The person that thinks that they can tell you how to live your life is the person that's delusional every single time. Yeah. Most people are humble enough that they're afraid to try to give you advice. They know that they don't know what to say. The people who are very quick with advice normally just tell you to do what they did. As to who has say in her life decisions and how much, Debbie, not my sister, says, I take into consideration the opinions of my immediate family, which consists of my mom, sister, and two nieces. They can sometimes see things from a different perspective, but ultimately, my life decisions are my own, good or bad. Shlomi Homi says, my spouse, my children, my close intentional friendships that I have formed for the purpose of having a say in my life, my church fellowship, I'm okay with it. I even value it and desire it. When I don't trust those relationships to be that for me anymore, I cut those ties and establish new ones. But those relationships are very life-giving, encouraging, and helpful. It's the good kind of accountability, not the dumb kind that religious folks leverage for control. It's ones built on mutual submission and respect and desire to see the best for each other. Trying to Work Things Out, Part 4. Church, Rules, and Words. At home... It drove me nuts, and I drove my parents nuts, because they avoided admitting in words what the rules were exactly and what was expected of me precisely, and I always seemed to want to negotiate everything using words. Same thing at my church. There were a whole bunch of rules in our magic castle. We didn't have to follow them, but we couldn't break them. You know what I think about the church right now? It's a group where they made rules, and people feel comfortable with the rules. Mm-hmm. These people join the church, any denomination, you know, and they start feeling safe and comfortable. People like rules. Yeah. Men like rules. And and even the way they, you know, when people say you have to dress like this, I remember I had a problem uh, wearing ties in my home assembly. People who were going to be in the pulpit on the stage you have to wear a tie. And I always fight, fought that thing. And I thought, where do you get getting this information? Where did this came from? Well, Jesus why, wore a tie, didn't he? And why skirts? Why, why uh, you know, all these things. And this is because the Bible. And I, and I was trying to, you know, find in the Bible when the Bible is, say, about wearing a tie mm-hmm. for Sunday morning or a skirt or, you know, it's so man-made and for me you know with all this happening in my own life i became for a little while bitter against the church mm-hmm. and every time somebody you know mention or talk about the church i didn't want to know about the church anymore i i definitely want to pursue a real relationship with god mm-hmm. grow in my relationship with god but i'm so sick of this mm-hmm. idea about so mm-hmm. many People talking about being part of the church or being part of the denomination or something like that. Because it's definitely, every time I visit the church, I think, what are the rules they have here for me? It's mm-hmm. so like that. <laughs> yeah. When heading into the uncharted waters of the 80s and 90s, we had to self-generate church-suitable policies and procedures on our own and adhere to them, lest we fail to be understood and accepted by the older folks, the power people. And we needed to. Our place was a special place for special people willing to live a special way. We got socially punished and eventually shunned if we didn't. 
and I would have largely gone along, and at first did, if only they would have admitted that they were asking all this of us. But they wouldn't. So when I was twenty-five, I wrote the rules up, in words, and I gave them to key brethren authority figures. I looked for an admission that all this was expected of us. I wasn't negotiating, just defining. Could we admit that this was the reality in which we lived, was the unspoken social contract? Nope, they said. We had no rules. Guidelines, maybe? Nicely worded guidelines, by the way. These are good. But no, we were free, freer than those who, bound in sin, didn't know Jesus. We had no authority figures either, certainly none that we'd name, and we sure didn't punish people for not following the non-rules. Nope, we never did. We didn't admit to being a church. We were just some Christian people following the Lord's leading as laid out in the scriptures. We didn't have a name, ditto. Didn't admit to having pastors or elders, same. Wouldn't admit to what many of our doctrines were, see above, and certainly didn't have any members or any expectations at all as to their behavior, lest they risk becoming former members. Michael Vetter, who once worked as a professional leprechaun, has some thoughts on the matter. If someone said, I went to yeah. your church and I disagree with your pastor, you're like, well, first of all, it's not a church. And secondly, we don't have a pastor. Like you just deny everything. They might have a very legitimate comment that they're trying to communicate with you. And I think that other people had a church. We didn't have a church. Other people had a worship service. We didn't admit to having a worship service. Uh, other people had a liturgy or a pastor. We didn't admit to having any of that, which meant that we never could be asked to have an open conversation or compare or defend any of our stuff. There's no words. There's no handles on it to do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. No handles. I think that's the way to, to do it. If there's no words to describe it. It's the same like with my kids growing up, like things I didn't want to discuss with them. I never named in front of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I didn't smoke in front of the kids for a long time or, or also uh, when I did smoke in front of them, I would say pipe instead of pipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that word. So if, if they were in public and they said, Oh, daddy's having a pipe. Everybody would look at me like, what's that mean? Yeah. Um, if you don't name it, you know, you can't get a handle on it. I think that's a good way to put that. There's so much that we knew, like we absorbed through osmosis. But the first rule was that we absolutely did not name it. We didn't discuss it. So we couldn't name the rules, the laws that we lived under. But if you broke them, you would know. You would you would certainly get spoken to. You would get taken aside. So if you're me, it felt like with if you can't really discuss the expectations that are on you, mm-hmm. and I think you'd agree that there were a lot of expectations on us as to what we had Tremendous. to do and couldn't do. Our lives were very, very limited and circumscribed. Yeah, circumscribed, and yet. I felt like if you can't name it, no one will admit to it. You can't discuss it. It's really unclear if people want to accuse you of something, you can't really advocate for yourself because the rules aren't even, they're not like a book of law that we can have a look at it and compare your behavior to what the law says because it wasn't in words. People could just accuse you of things or treat you as if you were guilty without ever discussing with you, whether or not you were guilty. You were supposed to know what you had done you were supposed to like intuitively know it was like walking through a minefield. All that refusal to admit to things or put our daily reality into words bugged me, really bugged me more than it seemed to bug most people. 
I frequently alluded in words to the rules and power struggles, the divisions we had, the doctrinal arguments, the people who got kicked out, and this upset people in a very special way. Talking about our rules was more of a problem than breaking them ever could have been, and it turned out if you want to push me into passive-aggressive, defensive, or argumentative reactions, accuse me of being aggressive when I'm not. Accuse me of anything. Make passive-aggressive comments. Make it a fight. Try to force me into a passive role or an aggressive one. I will give you your fight if I lose my grip on being measured and assertive. I will not drop it either. As we've established before, according to Troy, in those social situations, in church and outside of it, the done thing is to stay, be passive, and avoid the taboo topics, or aggressively say, fuck it, and fuck you, and walk away. Remaining and talking about the situation was not the done thing, not the deal, not the rule, not the expectation. The truth might set you free of stuff, after all. We need to keep insulated from it, to keep all of our silliest nonsense airborne. This is how we make the sacred pigs fly. And we're certainly not expected to then voice a suspicion as to exactly why there is pig shit seemingly everywhere for seemingly no reason. Those dots are intended to never be connected. Yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It wasn't just that I couldn't say certain words. We didn't even, we weren't even emphatic and confident in our words. Everything was supposed to be kind of gentle in a weird way. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that, I think that's probably more important than the actual being able yes. to say the word shit or, or whatever. Yeah. Think, so. Did you feel that like when you came out that everyone was talking and that like not saying so many things? Everything always felt a little weirdly fake, light, weird for sure. Everything felt, it definitely felt like a different world for mm-hmm. sure. And it definitely felt a little bit weird for sure, kind of fake or manufactured and, and unnatural. Performative is not a word that I would, uh, that was, you know, part of a big part of my vocabulary, but yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, and I, and I definitely felt like, you know, everyone's just artificially nice and, yeah. you know, like a little bit, you know, oh, there's a new guy. We got to go talk to him. Mm-hmm. And and not because and you know not because they really gave a shit or really want to talk to you because they felt that you know they should it was the thing that you yeah. did. Um, so yes, it was definitely a weird environment. And again, not you know like, particularly for me because I wasn't an outsider and I wasn't an insider mm-hmm. because I'd been there enough through yourself and your sister and your mother and father that that I wasn't completely an outsider, but I never embraced it and became a full insider either. Eventually, I was kicked out of my non-church group and barred from all social events with the intention of me getting shunned for life, with them refusing to ever talk to me in future about any of it or put into words what had happened or what was going on for the rest of my life. What had I done? It was hard to say in words. What rule had I broken? Reports were contradictory. I was simply a wicked person to be avoided by everyone because... uh, I was apt to, um, known to have, well, I heard that one time, I don't know if it's true, but someone told me. For me, probably the biggest area would be the gay area because I had this knowledge and I was trying to say it, but all I could say was I struggle with being gay. I had to immediately say being gay was a struggle, was wrong. So I obviously can't say it's a good thing. Did you say same sex attraction instead of gay or probably. did you say gay? Yeah. We actually weren't comfortable with saying gay even after coming out. 
Well, I know because I was talking to Ed and he kept yeah. saying that he struggled with same sex attraction to begin with. He was like, I struggle with yeah. SSA. <laughs> I struggle with SSA. Yeah. And I realized that, is it okay for me to call him gay? Because that's calling him something that he's not calling himself. Um, right. He's saying he, I struggle with same sex attraction is not the same thing. And I was thinking like, I'm calling him gay because pretty pretty sure ed's gay as far as i can tell i'm not gay myself <laughs> yeah. but my gaydar is almost non-existent but i'm getting some some signs that he might like guys <laughs> and there's no idea that there could be two sides of anything it's always like who's right and who's punished the right side and the wrong side yeah. there's always the one table it's hard to convey to regular church people or atheists is you the can't. idea that to try to convey the simple idea that when you're worshiping in your church you can't just go to another church because God will not recognize that. And so you're he at the, be there. yeah, it's, it's like you're, you, you're doing the, you don't have an option. And so if you get kicked out of your church, you're not kicked out of a church. You're kicked out of the church. Yes. The one true place. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was passionately held when I was growing up. I held it. I held it passionately until I was in my 20s. They're fairly proud of the fact that that's becoming rare. I know a couple of people who still preach along those lines, but people reassure me that they're a little bit, after the enormous number of divisions that they've had, they're a little bit more humble about being the only one right place. Now, they'll tell us that they don't preach the one right place. But if you ask them, are you at the right place? They will say something like, well, I certainly pray uh, you know, to the Lord that I am. And if you say, uh, which like, is saying, I know I am. Right. They're, and they're if really you say, wrong. do you think it's possible that the Lord could be at your place and an, another one too? They, they're saying, well, that really doesn't make any sense according to scripture. And then you ask, right. like, is it possible that, that the Lord is only at a different place? And they say, well, of course it's possible, but you know, we, we are in prayer and we feel. So to me, uh, it, it comes back to further Plymouth brethren, not putting things into words, like refusing to put things into the words. Plainly. Right. It's all understood. I believe that takes away people's ability to interact with it in any way. Yes, very much. Because you, you can't, it's like arguing with a shadow. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, this was how I grew up, and it drove me nuts. The refusal to discuss any of it, the clear inability to put most of it into words. But it was a done deal. The official excommunication letter and announcement of my sentence used words all right, but those words were quite vague and detached from anything that did or didn't happen. It was mostly done to stop me being there and thinking my thoughts and saying stuff and using words for anything, to force me to do the done thing. The done thing is to say, fuck it, and possibly fuck those guys, and go somewhere else, or nowhere, for church. To resent them, or hate them, or block them, mostly out of my memory. To then either shut up about it all and not think about it, or just spew unconsidered, unfocused, incoherent resentment that's not based in anything specific, and doesn't try to reach any real or fair conclusions. That's the done thing. They can deal with that. Everyone gets to feel right if you do it that way. The done thing is not as I did, to continue to think about it, look into it, seek perspective and wisdom, look for solutions, try to reconnect, to discuss matters with everyone, to look to connect dots and to generally talk about it, write books, songs, and podcast episodes about what it seemed to me had happened to so many of us. And I have tried to be very fair, not merely resentful and abusive. And that's weird.
People treat me like I'm some obsessive loony with a conspiracy wall in my garage with an enormous array of scrawled-on clippings glued to it and red yarn pinned in a veritable cobweb all over it. I don't even have a garage. And if I did, there'd probably be guitars and 80s video game consoles in it, and likely a TARDIS. I suppose this song was always supposed to have a bit of a teen punk attitude to it, being about getting really sick of people telling you how to be and what to do and the simple three-chord anyone-can-play-it thing has always appealed to me for its use in letting almost anyone deeply express heartfelt feelings that just don't seem to be gotten as viscerally across in more musically complex, emotionally shallower and narrower musical arrangements. Mind you... I pretty much never play punk and certainly don't have the voice for it. Be what you want. Anything said what you are. Be more like me. You can be a local star. I had George lay down some edgy drums to my acoustic part, though. with the idea of putting in some trashy-sounding punk guitar over it and playing bass, too, as I tend to do. But it occurred to me recently that if I was going to interview Kim, the bass player of Like a Motorcycle, an award-winning East Coast Canadian punk band, which professional bassist my sister taught in Sunday school, I might be bold enough to ask Kim if she'd be kind enough to email me a bass line to a demo mp3 of the song this episode is about. Kindly, Kim humored me and said yes. About playing bass for me, I mean, that would be awesome, but it's a dream. Like, if that happens, I'll be over the moon, but... It's going to happen. Oh, cool, cool. (laughs) That's awesome. Kim was pretty busy promoting a new album, being nominated for various East Coast Music Awards, and coming out of COVID measures to start touring again with a new singer and drummer and other tiny things like that. But after a few weeks, she finally did me the honor of adding some surfy, motorheady groove to my demo. I knew she'd recorded this because she DM'd me on Instagram that she had. I waited, trembling with anticipation patient to hear it. And a couple of weeks later, she emailed me the baseline at work where I could hear the part, but only by itself and only on my phone. Once home, I slid the emailed baseline into the demo version of the song itself and my jaw was on the floor. I couldn't believe it. To actually employ a cliché, the much more professional bass part took the song to a whole new level in terms of energy. Picked it up off the floor, kicked it in the ass, and told it to get on out there and rock and roll, I told Kim in the email I sent to tell her that yes, the part was okay for the song. Now, I normally do all of my own bass parts myself, and they're normally just... But Kim's bass line sounded like this. Me 
being me, I played with the revivified song all evening and, inspired by the punky, punked-out punkness of it, made it a whole lot less edgy and punk by adding a bunch of vocal harmonies all over it, just like it was a Broadway musical or something. It's just a tip. It's just a tip. Wasn't me that said it. Buy what you want. Buy what you want. Anything except what you're buying. Say what I want. Say what I want. I need to see you trying. Want what you want. What but you it must be the thing the I want thing for, I you. for you. Live how I want. How Evan says I do that every single time. <laughs> I hate Broadway musicals, but I love adding vocal parts. Now, I had a secret wish. My introduction to distorted guitar was that $15 plastic Radio Shack PA amp that my roommate Pete had turned up full in first year university and showed me about. <laughs> In aid of making that wall of guitars driving a dump truck through a lake of sludge guitar sound that I like, also inspired by Neil Young's 70s grungy guitar sound, layering a few guitar parts is important. So, the punky guitar I'd played through the 70s tube Vox amp my late uncle found in the trash in Toronto and gave to me, I recorded those a bit thin and trashy. As the Beatles used better versions of my Vox amp, and the Edge from U2 and countless others have the more expensive versions of it as well, like the AC30, I like using my Cambridge Vox reverb. But I thought I'd go in the opposite direction, too, and try putting down a pair of guitar tracks through the replacement $15 Radio Shack PA amp I recently picked up on eBay. Obviously, it's not very loud, so I stuck a good mic right up to it. Then, I layered them together. I liked it. Ironically, the tiny amp, about the size of a tea kettle, made the sound bigger. To ice that cake, I stole a bit of crowd applause from the Beatles, taking the stage at Shea Stadium. Hopefully, after listening to all of this, this song turns out to be what you want. Be what you want. Anything said what you want. Be more like me. You could be a local star. Be who you want. Anyone but who you seem to be. Why must you live? Your life's so different from me. Want what you want. But it must be the thing I want for you. Live how I want. I'll be your friend to you. Dress how I dress. Be sure to think like me. No more, no less. I'll make you free. I make you free. Go where you want. Anywhere, set where you're headed. It's just a tip. 
Ah! 